0: Welcome to Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology.
1: This podcast is produced by Timothy Neal, David Border Giles, Matt Barlow, Mythley Meher, and Cameo Daly. It's made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association and the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University. I'm Cameo. I'm Mythley. And the two of us are here to introduce what might be perceived as quite a grim episode, would you say?
0: I mean, it does have a bit of that tone to it, doesn't it?
1: This episode came about in response to the crisis that we see higher education in increasingly for the past decades, but it's a crisis that's really come to a head during the pandemic uh, earlier this year.
0: I mean, it's been uneven, right? So there's been a lot of different responses depending on the part of the world that you're in, I guess. But yeah. Yeah. Certainly, there has been a sense of the higher education sector being really at risk, right? And particularly ones yep. like anthropology, like the arts, like social sciences.
1: Yeah, and it's it's not new. It's I think as the conversation touches on this, we've been steadily building to this for quite a while. So to speak to these things and the histories that have brought about this moment. David brought together three anthropologists who each have a take on the state of higher education. We hear from Chris Shaw, who's Professor at Goldsmiths University of London, and Chris researches Europe, audit culture, universities and the global knowledge economy and the anthropological approaches to the study of policy. Very relevant for these issues.
0: Another one is Melinda Hinkson, who's an Associate Professor of Anthropology at the Alfred Deakin Institute at Deakin University. She has wide ranging interests in the fault lines of settler colonial Australia uh, and an interest in visual culture.
1: And the third interviewee is Dafford Greenwood, who's Professor of Anthropology Emeritus at Cornell. And Dafford is focused on the anthropology of organisations with a special interest in higher education reforms. So I think it's worth acknowledging as well that there are four time zones coming together in this conversation which seems to detract from the audio quality a little bit. It's not as shiny and crispy as we usually like to be in our recordings, but bear with it because I think it's a worthwhile conversation showing you a picture of where we are right now in higher education.
0: Yeah, I think one of the really interesting things is there's sort of two trajectories that come out in the interview. So these kind of longer-term trends in the university sector kind of globally and the way that that interacts at a more, I suppose, a shorter time frame, maybe the last 12 months in particular, um, when universities are facing, you know, the contraction of global economies and of revenue from governments yeah. that support them. And so bringing those two trajectories into conversation, I think, is a really, really powerful way to think about um, what the impacts have been, and particularly in, on anthropology as a kind of arts, social sciences discipline
1: alongside these movements within universities towards these kind of grim ends, grim becomings. there are also a lot of projects like the Free University, like Roads Must Fall, like Why Is My Curriculum White and like the Institute of Postcolonial Studies, which I believe Melinda Hinkson is a part of in Australia, bodies that really challenge the universities, unions too. Are uh, gathering a lot of momentum in response to what's going on.
0: I think providing the opportunity to, to talk and to think and reflect about the changes that have happened and to think about what a university of the future might look like opens up opportunities that we might not have thought about before. So the idea that we might in the future move away from these really kind of traditional models of universities mm. and education and Absolutely. And we might not, yeah, we might not know what that looks like just yet.
1: Yeah, and that's okay. We, we're in it now. We've got to imagine and build something new. So I hope you all enjoy this episode and join your unions.
2: So I should say thanks for joining us, you know, all the way from the UK, Spain, and then here in Melbourne. What we normally do with the podcast is start off with a a bit of an icebreaker, and we ask, you know, how you found your way to anthropology, and it's a way of warming up. But we're here for a a more specific purpose, and we're here with a with a sort of more concerted, maybe even a bit uh, a bit of a grim prospect to talk about. So I thought maybe instead of asking you how you found your way to anthropology, maybe I could ask you what sort of anthropologist you are. You know, how you think about. Uh, the kind of work that you do, the kind of scholarship you do, and why that makes you interested in questions of uh, what's happened to higher education, and uh, that answer will be a bit different for each of you.
3: Well, um, I wish I knew the answer to your question. I've been many kinds of anthropologists throughout my career. I started out as an economic anthropologist, uh, working in Basque rural depopulation got caught up in the ethnic violence in the Basque country and ended up studying ethnic identity and ethnic politics for a while. And then that led me into racist and deterministic ideologies. And I moved out of anthropology into the science and technology studies uh, because the anthropologists weren't interested in, in looking at biological and cultural phenomena in some kind of relationship to one another. And then I got named to be the director of all the international programs at Cornell and ended up as an administrator and and teacher at the same time for 17 years and that's where I learned about how organizations and universities work and also connected with the industrial relations people who eventually led me into organizational behavior and to the Mondragon cooperatives that got me into action research and from there I ended up going to Norway and working in industrial democracy so the question is to what kind of an anthropologist I am, I think, doesn't have any answer whatsoever. And, and I've been obsessed for the last 20 years, like Chris, I think, with uh, the reform of higher education. Uh, hmm. so all this organizational learning that I did as an administrator so it became the basis for, for ethnography itself and uh, an attempt to understand why these organizations work so badly.
2: Hmm. But you've also brought your interest in action research and your interest in higher education together in some ways, too.
3: Yes, finally. I mean, I didn't see the connection initially. I did the action research in among the own cooperatives, and, and that was fascinating. It completely changed my view of how to do my work. And then I began to think, why can't I apply this at home in the Center for International Studies? And I did successfully and scared the be- Jesus out of the administration because the faculty began to organize as a group. Uh, And we got into all kinds of trouble that way. So it seemed seemed like a a worthwhile transition. But the action research came before the university.
2: Mm. So what does it make possible if you think about studying higher education through the lens of action research?
3: Well, action research is always about collaborative decision making. It's about everybody in the entire organization has relevant experience and rights And that you make much better decisions if you can figure out how to use all that knowledge and mediate the differences and similarities. Not to have a you know mass line kind of organization, but we take advantage of maybe 1% of the intelligence of the people that we have in these big organizations. And um, there are many, many people in the universities who could do a much better job than current people are doing if they were just allowed to participate in the decision making. And, of course, if the pay structure weren't so drastically
2: unequal, I have a feeling that uh, some of our vice chancellors here in Australia would not enjoy this conversation. I hope not. Um, Chris or Melinda, do one of you want to chime in?
4: Uh, Okay. Well, I've I've been a precarious anthropologist, and I I guess I'm I'm an employed one. I, I probably sort of... Classify myself as a, a political anthropologist i I got very inspired um, by the agenda that was called studying up the idea of kind of using anthropological techniques and methods and approaches to to focus on the, the hidden hierarchies, as, as Laura Nader called them. And um, so my my work has traditionally been on studying organisations, uh, institutions, political parties in, in particular. And I got very interested in this whole area of anthropology of policy and in policy. But yeah, like David, uh, I, um, I got... I, I was head of department in London about sort of ooh, 25 years ago uh, and, and about 1990s and uh, I, I decided that the, the only way to really to make sense of it all was to kind of think through what was happening to my own institution from an, an ethnographic anthropological lens and you know it was very cathartic it helped me make sense of it and helped me survive but I've been fascinated by university reform and these narratives about the global knowledge economy. And I've kind of witnessed, you know, born testimony to the massive changes that have occurred in higher education um, as a kind of sector and as an industry over the last two decades, and I'm still fascinated in in watching what's going on. And COVID, um, the the current crisis, is just the latest iteration in some of these processes, but I'm sure we'll come on to that.
2: Absolutely. And then, Melinda, I know uh, this is not a topic of research for you, but I know that we've had many a conversation about how we engage with uh, the reforms of higher education that are ongoing.
5: Yeah, for sure. So obviously my own anthropology is... Has really worked through a bunch of different projects in Indigenous Australia, and I suppose very broadly that the governance of Indigenous difference, if you like. So there's a there's, there's a some kind of shared ground there in terms of policy making um, and, uh, and and the forms of mad domination it wreaks um, across various populations, but. As you say, I'm, I know you've invited me along because I've got, a, I've got broader interests in, in the possibilities of public anthropology, the need for, for forms of public anthropology in the present. Dare I say the idea of a public university, whether it might still be, be imaginable in the present, and then wider and, and, and different kinds of ideas around independent education. And I think also it, it's... Um, It's an interesting time for somebody of my vintage. I I was an undergraduate student during the Dawkins reforms that were brought in in Australia that really set about what gets described as the revolution in in education that that has changed the, the ground of university so much over recent decades. And so traversing that period from the late 1980s to the present has really brought us to the sticking point that we find ourselves in now. Mm.
2: we've got listeners across the Pacific and, and the Atlantic and further beyond, so I think a lot of our listeners won't know about the Dawkins reforms. Could you sketch that out a little bit for
3: us?
5: In a nutshell, 1986, 1987 was the time when the Australian government began to reimagine universities onto a new footing with the introduction of, of student fees Um, with the amalgamation of certain kinds of institutions that previously had not been seen as universities um, and a whole series of commercial interests started to roll out on the back of those changes. A dramatic increase in student numbers, And from then on, a set of commercialisations of scholarly work that followed into the 1990s. And in fact, the other two speakers that we have here have obviously tracked those changes. The Australian situation is by no means exceptional. But what we're all very much aware of is, if you like, 2020 is the year when the chickens have come home to roost rather than COVID itself being the cause of the so-called crisis.
2: So, perhaps we can turn to that and I'd like to ask each of you about, first of all, what the, the current crisis, how it's manifesting in each of your locations and what, what you're watching change about the landscape right now and then sort of backfill and talk a little bit more about the longer trajectories that that's exacerbating. And so, it's, it's a real privilege to be able to have a conversation that's multi-local in this way. You know, I think probably we'll each have colleagues who have you know a lot to say uh, and a close familiarity with what's going on. You know, around us, but I don't think we have these conversations globally often enough. I wonder if each of you could take a moment to just sort of flesh out in the the last six to eight months what you've seen happen in higher education, in where you are, as a result of the pandemic, as a result of COVID and the the economic fallout, you know, and, and all the all the flow on effects.
4: It's been pretty dramatic. COVID has just exacerbated a whole series of trends that were already there. I mean, universities, a number of universities were in financial difficulty, and it's probably due to the the funding model that had been developed over the previous 10 years, you know, the kind of the neoliberal university model. And Melinda mentioned chickens coming home to roost. That's very much the case here. Many UK universities are now facing bankruptcy. Uh, I mean, there's a paradox, and there's a real irony here that, you know, in periods of recession, and the uk is in recession so is australia and new zealand you know officially now the united states too higher education assumes an enormous additional importance because if you can't get jobs people tend to flock to uh, training and yet the institutions are groaning straining under the, unser- the the weight of uncertainty we are 2 weeks away from the start of a new teaching term we don't have a timetable We are unsure whether the condition will be red, online teaching only, amber, blended learning, or green, no, it definitely will not be green, return to campus, normal life. Earlier in May, a higher education SA financial analysis showed that 50 UK universities were at risk, financially speaking, and these included some of the rather unexpected big players. Um, a number of members of the elite Russell group were listed, including Bath, Exeter, Brunel, University of East Anglia, Lancaster, Queen Mary, Regent's University, even Bristol University, one of the top sort of four or five. And then, of, of course, uh, in July, we had a, a report that was published that didn't mention which ones, but it said that 13 universities face, quote, a very... Real prospect of insolvency because why? Well, lockdown has resulted in massive drop in international students like Australia. UK universities have become heavily dependent on um, high fee paying students from overseas, particularly uh, China. Uh, loss of income from student accommodation. Many universities had, had implowed huge sums of money into building halls of residence and renting them out. It had become a, a lucrative income stream. Well, one of the jokes about universities today is that they're really uh, uh, they're kind of property investment companies with a sideline in educational services. And then, of course, you know, we, the universities uh, have lost their long-term investment income. So... We're in a pretty dire situation and, and it's still in a period of, of total uncertainty. We, we will have a clearer picture in the next two or three weeks when we know exactly how many students return. But as of the, the beginning and when, when COVID struck, we were looking at my own institution, we're talking about emergency measures. They were calling for voluntary severance. They put a freeze on all hiring, on all sabbatical research leave. And there was talk in the air of compulsory redundancies in um, in December or November uh, later this year, and that prospect is still there. You know, universities are you know the, the, some of the models we were uh, we had one called the London Economic Model that and was projecting a loss of between 25 and 45 percent of university income, and the government has sort of made it quite clear that they they are not eager to to bail out universities they have to bail out private airlines virgin and so on but not not public universities no
2: so much of that resonates with what's happening in australia i wonder melinda if you want to chime in with your view
5: yeah indeed i mean this is the summation of those those processes that were introduced in the 1980s that i referred to briefly before gradually particularly over the last decade australian universities have have been expanding the extent to which their income is is being drawn from the international student market. Between twenty percent and forty percent of the income of most Australian universities is 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 structured in that way at the moment. So, it's it, it's. A, A disaster of mixed proportions depending on on where you go. As Chris has described, the universities all moved extremely quickly in Australia to freeze all expenditure, all so-called non-essential expenditure was frozen and all sorts of structural adjustments started happening very quickly within the university. So at Deakin, we had something that is called the Budget Sustainability Unit, a new entity brought in that has unprecedented power to make all decisions. Any decision making that has any financial implications whatsoever have to go to that unit. And the other things that we've seen, of course, were very, very rapid cuts of casual teaching staff in almost invisible fashion. Thousands of jobs, thousands of sessional jobs lost incredibly quickly and given no public visibility at all. There are all sorts of predictions about numbers of jobs that might be lost. We seem to be ahead of the UK in terms of cuts being rolled out already. So, And Deakin, as we know well, was the first cab off the rank uh, in Australia to bring in a fairly brutal set of cuts, forced redundancies, the atrocious spill and fill, as we describe these processes locally, whereby... So many jobs in an area get cut, all the remaining staff have to apply for the remaining jobs. And there's this sense across the sector that there are a series of waves that are coming. So we've many of the institutions in Australia now have been through the first wave of cuts with varying degrees of friendliness or otherwise attached to the processes by which those decisions were made very little collaborative decision-making, needless to say, much more top-down, very fast, very brutal decisions. But the feel across the sector is really that we're in a holding pattern and the much bigger structural adjustment is yet to come and that that's likely to follow in 2021 when the further extent of the losses of income will be felt.
2: And I've seen the projections that across the Australian sector will lose up to 30,000 jobs. I've seen estimates that we've already lost up to 10,000 jobs. David, I wonder how that compares to. I mean, and you've got the interesting experience of being based in Barcelona, but being affiliated with Cornell.
3: Actually, in Seville I and mean, in central Spain, in Barcelona. Oh, sorry, Seville. Well, a couple of caveats. I've been retired since 2014. So I follow the university mostly and the paperwork that they send out all the time. Also, you know, there are 5,000 higher education institutions in the US. So there 's somebody doing something everywhere I mean there are all kinds of things going on, so it 's pretty hard to generalize Cornell 's one of the elite universities it 's also a peculiar university because it 's half state and half private it 's the only one that 's like that and so it does it is a public university and a private university <laughs> at the same time, which makes absolutely no sense for anyone the The situation i mean'm i guess i 'm with chris the, All I've seen happening is an intensification of what was already present. Hierarchization has increased. The central administration has now completely co-opted the voice and decision-making capacity of the university. The Faculty Senate is uh, a simulacrum of uh, an organization. The other thing you need to know is that the American universities opened in at the end of August. Our semester begins earlier. So we've been in operation for a while. Yesterday, there was an article that said that they've managed to produce 40,000 contagions already on campus so far. Many of the universities are hiding the information in order to make sure that they don't look bad in public. Uh, The other consideration, I mean, I don't really have anything to add to what Chris laid out as the kinds of things that are happening. The other consideration, because I've been in Spain all this time, Spain is collapsing economically, mostly because it's up it has to become about 80% dependent on tourism, on international tourism. I mean, there's usually three times the entire population in Spain comes to Spain to spend the summer. And I've written about tourism years ago as an anthropologist. uh, and been fairly critical. But now I realize that Cornell University is very much like a tourist business. When you knock out the 35% of foreign students that would come to Cornell, All of a sudden, books don't balance anymore. Then the real estate around the area goes belly up, the student real estate. So we actually have created a a highly dependent uh, economic system based on international flows that are completely beyond the control of an administration. And yet the administrative picture that comes out of the statements from the administration, which is now always the president and the voice of the entire university, Speaking and saying everything is fine. We have it all under control. We have, we have codes of conduct that we're enforcing on the students as if they ever worked in the past. And a lot of people don't want to come to work. There is resistance. Some universities, the University of Michigan Ann Arbor has had a vote of no confidence, a successful no confidence vote in the administration. Uh, a number of graduate student unions have successfully uh, sinked out. And so on. So there is, you know, there are bits of reactions here and there. But the other thing that's happening is in, in the US public university system, the, the states have oh, since neoliberalism began, have cut their allocations to public higher education systematically. The trade-off in the US has been between higher education and healthcare, since we don't have a healthcare system, and the cost of healthcare are outrageously higher than they are in any other country more and more of the state budget goes to healthcare and the easiest place to cut is in higher education. And now the COVID has simply intensified that process to the point that, you know, there may be states where there's literally no state allocation whatsoever, a budget to the universities they will be forced back entirely on tuition. So it's it's the shock doctrine in spades.
2: Right. So I've only heard sort of anecdotally horror stories about people who had just achieved tenure, who had that rolled back, or people in the, on the tenure track who were informed that at the end of their seven years, there'd be no position for them. Do you, have you kept track of... there
3: uh, aren't very reliable figures. And besides, you know, the US, well, I mean, I'm, I'm older than the rest of you. So I started in 1970 in the good old days where everything was fat and happy. And so then I lived into the 80s when it started to turn bad. At the time I uh, became a professor, about 75% of all faculty were tenure tracked. Uh, now it's, it's about 25% before this all happened. And now what they're doing is they're, they're rolling back because financial exigency is a legal justification for undoing tenure contracts. They're rolling those back. So what we're doing is in, it's increasing the number of adjuncts and short term contracts uh, in a dramatic way to provide flexibility. So, but nobody, you know, we don't have a national authority. We don't have a ministry of education because the states control the education system in the 50 states. And so nobody really collects statistics that anybody can pay attention to as being valid. And we literally don't know how many people have been occasionalized, but it looks like a very large number.
2: Right. So, you mentioned Naomi Klein's shock doctrine. I think I probably have a few follow-up questions for all of us about the ways in which the shock is being used. And since you're on the subject of what the implications are at the level of government, maybe I can ask about that and also the politics of bailouts. And I wonder if I could just ask each of you to talk a little bit about what kinds of projects and, and motivations are animating the government response Uh, Or the government lack of response to the crisis in higher education.
4: Yeah, I was going to say that there's often a maxim that people follow in politics, which is never waste a good crisis or never let a crisis go to waste. And here, the politics of bailout and the conditionalities being imposed, we we saw a very vivid example of this. You put it in your list of questions to ask about. This was the the UK Education Secretary Gavin Williams announcing that any university in the UK needing a bailout to survive the the COVID-19 impact will have to, quote, demonstrate its commitment to free speech and adding that, you know, they should also seek to close low value courses with low graduate pay. So that that raises a whole interesting question. Um, This is part of their agenda for a long time to devalue or to sort of disinvest in humanities and social science courses and put what diminishing resources there are into STEM subjects, which the claim is that these lead to greater employability. Very dubious claim. In fact, what you know, what employers really want isn't necessarily number crunching uh, people who haven't been trained to question or to think. But um, the really interesting epithet here is low value courses. Here, the government is measuring value in terms of economic remuneration, and they are literally, you know, their model is to go to the the inland revenue to look at tax returns to then gauge the the benefit of a a perceived course uh, in terms of that value. So the upshot of that will be that, you know, if you go to university to study social care, social work, nursing, teaching, nursery provision, all of these critical services that have never been more relevant to our economy now in these conditions of COVID, these are not professions that traditionally grant their their incumbents, you know, high salaries, you know, they're they're low salary jobs. So the upshot of this is we should be only promoting people who somehow work in university courses directly relevant to employment in finance or in, um, you know, housing or a realist, the fire economy, you know, um, finance, insurance, real estate, or, or medicine and pharmacy and Lucrative professions so it's a really flawed model but um this is the one that they're they're using they're also using as another indicator universities the high dropout rates and this has been a a, a real push on the, the use of metrics to to reward and punish uh, and high dropout rates is taken as a measure of failure in a course but what it doesn't do of course is take any um, appreciation of particular universities uh, that that try to widen participation or increase social inclusion by taking on students from non-traditional backgrounds, from weak uh, backgrounds, returning you know students with problems. So inevitably, you're going to get higher dropout rates and students who have got who are coming to university with you know pre-existing problems. The main problem being poverty, but we're being penalized. My university is one at one such university that has strong local connections with one of the poorest boroughs in the United Kingdom. We're in southeast London and we have a, a strong emphasis on year zero foundation courses. I think the students probably about fifty percent of them don't complete, but that's taken a measure of our failure rather than our success in getting those students into the university. And the final thing I want to say is that, yeah, I mean, we know the British successive Conservative governments have for a long time nurtured a vision of a, re- a reimagined higher education sector that is more entrepreneurial, more open for business, and have actively encouraged or introduced policy measures to open up the sector, to break it open to unbundle the university in order to make its assets amenable to for-profit providers. And so, you know, it, it was always prefigured in the government's model that maybe a handful of universities in the United Kingdom, well, would go into effectively into receivership, at which point they would be taken over by you know, larger, possibly non-traditional higher education providers, even sort of new incumbents you know, like Pearsons and so on. And uh, that was always the plan. And when the, the, the previous higher education minister announced in Parliament that he, he could anticipate market closure for certain uh, institutions, that was a euphemism for anticipating that one or two universities may well indeed go out of business. And we've seen this model being applied to the school system uh, with the the introduction of academies. The academisation of education is a way of opening the door for privatisation, for marketisation and for capture by for-profits, often uh, overseas uh, financial companies too. I think that combined pattern will mean that the kind of liberal education that I suspect many of us have grown used to in the post war period that that is associated with democracy and so on with uh, students uh, you know higher education seen as a, as a right, not necessarily a, as a, a kind of a privilege or a personal financial investment in your individual career that is increasingly eroded. The only people who will be able to afford. To do subjects like you know literature and art and um, so on will be people from you know well-heeled backgrounds. There will probably be yeah a greater emphasis on short-term courses. What we've seen in the United States is probably offers a good model where you've got some very big for-profit providers like Phoenix and the number of times that they have you know been fined or challenged by government committees for their actually quite predatory activities in hard selling to vulnerable communities and then exploiting them, basically profiteering from a system of government loans. And this is uh, the the four profits want to get their hands on the government loans, as well as on university degree awarding powers. And legislation has been changed in the UK to enable for-profit institutions to have these degree awarding powers it used to be that only you, you had to have a royal charter uh, to uh, be entitled as an institution to confer degrees um, the mo- most recent higher education uh, amendment act changed that so the, the, the broader implications yeah are more Privatized, differentiated sector, greater squeeze on students. I don't know. It's a, it's a murky vision of the future. It resembles more the past than the future. We're returning to the 19th century rather than pursuing a, a, a great new dawn into the future. I don't see how this can really work for the majority. It will benefit the few, perhaps.
2: Mm, that certainly resonates with what we've heard in Australia, you know, where we've had the government propose to double the cost of an arts
0: degree.
5: Yeah, we- I mean, all, all of this is, is sitting in our parliament as we speak. The so-called jobs-ready graduate package is mm. poised to probably pass. There's an extraordinary paradox in all of this, of course, when we have these government ministers get up and make these statements about the need to put the support where the real jobs growth potentially is and to take that away from humanities because arts degrees apparently are worthless in, in, in terms of job markets. But one after one of these government ministers, of course, have gone through universities and graduated with arts degrees. They have a full sense of the forms of value that they're participating in rendering invisible in this this set of appalling processes but the other thing that's going on is an intensification of the separation of teaching and research and This is something that the Australian government is coming to explicitly in a way that it hasn't before. And in in a couple of weeks' time, we'll have a little bit more of a sense of what the research funding trajectory is going to be that gets paired with this so-called jobs-ready graduate package. The very fact that the government is now making it Almost impossible for universities to be able to use discretionary funding in support of research in ways that that they have done and they've been reliant upon doing in in the last decade in particular is going to have very far-reaching consequences, both for the, the the experiences of students who who come into the universities and and very much more particularly, of course, for all of us who are are employed and who have you know, fundamental commitments to that being an unbreakable nexus. That the very possibility of separating teaching and research is a, a very grim prospect, I think.
3: But there is a disconnect. You know, this all claims to be a, driven by a, a rational economic model following the numbers. But uh, as a result of a search conference that we ran in Aarhus that I that Chris participated in, actually, I got interested in this, the question of what employers are actually looking for. And so we did not a very systematic collection, but a collection that must be 25 or 30 references where employers have been asked what kinds of, they're saying, we can't find people with the skills that we want. And what kind of skills do we want? And they perfectly describe somebody with a liberal arts education. And so the people who are actually wanting to hire, these sorts of folks are not the ones that the people who are making the higher education policy are listening to. So it's a fake economic argument that they're making. The disconnect is, is worth exploring in more detail and trying to understand how that disconnect actually works. But uh, so far, I haven't found anybody building in the U.S. using this kind of information to build a claim to support the social sciences and humanities. The, the dominant discourse is exactly the same one that everybody here has been articulating. But it's not financial exigency that's making this determination. It's a much deeper ideological and political agenda against social analysis, social criticism. You know, it's about training passive proletarians.
5: Mm,
2: David and Chris, you both sort of written about the sort of ham-fisted Machiavellianism uh, of audit culture. Do you think there's a moment here where we can actually challenge that?
4: Well, I'm trying to think. I mean, there's a kind of irony, and it's um, my own institution is a, is a real interesting exemplar of this. And I, I find it bitterly, sadly ironic. My university is sort of currently facing a, it's about 7 million deficits, With the projected shortfall in students, because about 20% are international, the college has quite a a strong international profile. It was projected to lose about 30 million this year. So it went to the the government to ask for a loan to the Bank of England. The the government refused, saying we're we're not in the business of bailing out universities. So it was forced to go to the private banks. We had kind of loans already with a couple of the main high street banks. The banks said, well, yeah, in principle, we'll agree to this. However, before we grant you a loan, we need to uh, have an independent business review to test your financial viability. Who do they commission to do that review? <laughs> KPMG, one of the big four international accountancy firms one of the, who i think are the drivers behind international audit culture because they have their tentacles into so many sectors so we are now waiting on the so called independent business review which is a review from a i think a very predatory organisation a global organisation that has done nothing but expand in size and scope since the global financial crisis and before who are going to basically pass judgment on the future viability of our university and, of course, will impose conditions. I mean, we talked about the government having its agenda and the, the politics of bailout. Now we have the politics of bailout and the conditionalities will be instructed by one of the accountancy firms uh, who we, we kind of know their, their agenda. And David mentioned Klein and the shock doctrine, and uh, I'm sure there's going to be more of that in, in order to force us to to demonstrate our ability to pay back these loans, so you, you asked me the question: Is there a way out of this audit uh, culture phenomena? Um, it does create space for challenging some of these assumptions. On the other hand, you know, when, when we look at the bigger picture, step back from the local, and we see increasingly, you know, the I, I think even our own vice chancellors realize that what they're struggling for at the moment is the maintenance of their own autonomy, their freedom to act within these financial constraints is shrinking and it will shrink even more if we are forced into debt and have to accept those conditions. We all know that debt makes slaves of people and that's the implication of of borrowing a large sum. So I'm rather gloomy. I I think in some ways, you know, we, we can challenge audit culture from below, we can challenge the metrics, we can sort of push back at some of the the, the, refuse to participate in the ways that we are being measured and the different surveys, even though they come at us wave upon wave of increasing numbers of league tables and yardsticks by which we're being constantly measured and evaluated. But the bigger structural picture is one in which, you know, the autonomy of institutions is being eroded by debt, and we're being put into the hands of these basically financial, big financial players. And I fear for the future of, of our institutions when that happens. It makes sense to look at some exceptions. I mean, one of the things that's interesting
3: to spend time on are those things that aren't quite following the, the trend. I mean, there, there are plenty following the trend. There's no question about that. One odd case is Arizona State University. Arizona State University is a second-class university in the state of Arizona, quite large. I think it's about 70, 75,000 students. It was taken over by this fellow who's a sort of a combination of P.T. Barnum and Ringling Brothers circus, but very smart. He took it over and he tore up the, the college and department structures, created thematic uh, cross-system kinds of problem structures for the university, recruited successfully a bunch of really <laughs> major people. Just, I just noticed recently Craig Calhoun just went to Arizona State, and he made a promise to the people of Arizona that no student who wanted to go to college would be turned away from Arizona State University, and he's kept the promise. So he's got the legislature on his side. Uh, what kind of quality is producing is a whole other question. I mean, there's there's fundamentally no research on the university other than what he publishes. Uh, But at least here's somebody who has said, okay, I'll take your rules, but I'm going to do something else within the structure of those rules. And I think that's an interesting case. The other interesting case is at the complete opposite end of the perspective, which is the Mondragon University, which is the cooperative university in the Basque Country, with 8,000 students and uh, five faculties, five colleges all over the Basque Country, and the central administration of three administrators and three secretaries. So the entire university is run and managed by everybody in the university. Uh, And the salary differentials in that system are one to six. The top paid salary is only six times the lowest salary. And the lowest salary is a living wage for a family. They're successful. They're meeting the, the standards for the EU. They meet the audit culture standards in terms of how things turn out. And yet they're organized in a way that most people would say is completely absurd and impossible. So you know, trying to explore these institutions that are finding ways to get around this, or Berea College, which is a liberal arts college, which is still entirely solved in the middle of this crisis while most liberal arts colleges are collapsing, it would behoove us to spend time on those cases.
2: David, your, your book is called Creating a New Public University uh, and Reviving Democracy. So one of the reasons uh, I wanted to ask you was because I was hoping that there'd be some optimism. <laughs> I was hoping you might have some thoughts about what it looks like to foster those models.
3: Yeah, well, it's hard to be optimistic. I mean, I think I share the general pessimism <laughs> that, that we're all evoking. But it's also maybe this was Marx's mistake, too. He believed that when things got bad enough, they would change. And so I, I'm still thinking, you know, it just, if it keeps getting worse, people are just not going to tolerate it any longer. And so, um, I mean, the public universities in, in the United States are in complete meltdown. They're just collapsing. Now, a couple of them have unions and the unions are becoming more active finally. It's taken forever, but they're becoming, more. the graduate students have begun unionizing. So there may even be hope in the existing public universities for for something in the way of at least a significant mobilization to counter some of this. I think there's also plenty of room for the founding of either new universities or taking the imminent bankruptcy and turning it into a let's redesign this from the ground up and let's start over. And what we tried to do in that book was to lay out a kind of model or a matrix organization and a process by which you could do that redesign without reproducing this Tayloristic hierarchical system and one that's better connected to the communities. Well, the other thing that we're forgetting here is that these universities bring students back into communities and then make the people in the communities sick. I and mean, so that the level of connection to the community and its welfare and the surrounding environment is something else that a new public university would have to be built on. And there are lots of angry people around these big universities right now who would like to see the university be quite different from the way it is. So energy, I think there is. Whether whether the wisdom to know how to take that energy and put it somewhere, I'm not so sure. I don't see much leadership. The left still seems asleep at the wheel.
2: Naively, I've, I've thought similarly that the worse it gets, the more chance there is that we might organise. And was certainly, you know, Melinda and I, I think, have definitely seen our colleagues at Deakin more animated and finding more common cause with each other than I think I've seen uh, since I began teaching. I don't know Melinda, if, that, if that's too well, Pollyanna for to me.
3: Well, I think it varies from place to place. For example, the elite universities in the U.S. show no sign of changing anything. The more endangered, less prestigious universities that are trying to live by their wits and figure out what to do may be better locations for this kind of organization and reorganization to that they place in sort of like Arizona State, the sort of second-level universities that can't bank on their reputation but have to do something different in order to survive. But I think the elites, are, they're going to simply sit on their endowments and enjoy themselves.
5: I think in Australia that the very question of how you do anything collegial is, has been an increasing... Problem. And, and obviously not just in Australia, but it goes cheek by jowl with all of the sorts of developments we've been tracking across this conversation, that academic staff have been forced to work as isolated individuals and we've been profoundly discouraged from any kind of collective organization or working together and so this has been an interesting moment to see what happens when you actually do tap colleagues and you say well what what do you think about this do we share a vision for what the university might be and if so then how do we move forward now that's a really difficult discussion to have where your starting point is not one necessarily of shared analysis it might be very superficially so but when you dig down into it it gets all awfully complicated and filleted. And yes, people are are worrying for their jobs. So collective action only goes so far of the kind that we've been progressing at at our university. Yes, we can write an open letter to the university, but so what? Ultimately, at some level, the vice-chancellor will say, well, thank you very much. Of course, I take all of your concerns very seriously and, and onwards we march kind of thing. But I think there are lots of reasons to think that this ain't the end. I mean, and we've touched on many of them. As David said, the very fact that employers want employees who can think critically, who know how to problem solve, that in and of itself sits there as a crucial marker. The very fact that universities are populated by academics who are profoundly passionate about what they do and that very basic principle of being there to teach people not what to think but how to think is such a strong commitment for so many of us and the fact that students themselves will continue to come to universities regardless of the cost because they feel that the kind of education that they can have there is pivotal to the kind of life possibilities they might pursue and that goes well beyond questions of what kind of wage they might earn. So I think all of those things are are there in the mix, you know, the so-called cracks in the bureaucratic field. But in in terms of the bigger picture, if the pressure becomes such that universities become emptied-out versions of the shells that they are now, shrunken versions of, of what they are now, then... Something else has to happen in society to make room for the kind of work that we do. And, and what might that be? Different kinds of financial models, different kinds of ways of making sure education happens. It will be modest, it will be different, it will be differently structured, but it will get some elements of that autonomy back that we've lost and, and that is so vital to any kind of scholarship with integrity at its heart.
2: Uh, it feels like our whole conversation has been framed from within the perspective of the embattled humanities uh, and the embattled arts. We might be having a slightly different conversation if we were in the STEM fields and the favoured sons. Maybe
3: but- not. I mean, the, my colleagues in the STEM fields, and also I have a son who is a geneticist in Berlin and, mm. and is part of the Free University of Berlin and so on. And what what they all see is that the the other culture model has... Penalized the development of the sciences, particularly the what if part of the sciences, the more speculative, more f- less applied, less likely to produce patent income immediately. Kinds of science have been pushed to the side, and evaluations of the STEM programs are beginning to turn into evaluations of the same sort. How many patents have you produced recently? How many publications do you have in such and such a journal? It is penalizing teamwork, which has been fundamental to the development of a lot of the scientific fields. And so you have a lot of very dissatisfied senior scientists and engineers too. Engineers are also just having similar kinds of problems in the engineering faculties. So I, it's true that the humanists and the social scientists are being beaten to death, but the, but the STEM people aren't happy either.
2: Mm. So is there more possibility for, for kind of university wide organizing than maybe I'm giving their I
3: I guess that's what I'm implying. I think that the the system is bad for everybody, and now most everybody notices. And you know, and any good union organizer says, you know, if everybody's unhappy, this is a great place to organize a union. (laughs) So,
2: what was also going to ask, since we're all anthropologists, if there's anything you'd add about how this looks from anthropology, or what anthropologist's job is in the process of this particular cataclysm. Uh, And I'll add the caveat that a lot of our listeners are PhD students in anthropology and that this is one of their ways into the field.
5: Anthropology gives you the gift of being able to interrogate relationships in their weird and unfolding forms and um, the question of scale and the recognition that institutions are products of innumerable forms of relationships is an element of that. But also um, to take some comfort from the fact that what the state sees or wants is is never what it gets. So that anthropological eye on the detailed experience, the complex, contradictory experience of these processes is important too, I think.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I see sort of scope for for optimism in in a sense that higher education is intrinsically of value and universities, despite this kind of push to uh, and the insecurities they're undergoing... too big to fail. I'm sure we will get our loan approved on the basic assumption or the modeling will be that, well, yeah, I mean, if I can use the the term, this is not an industry in decline. You know, higher education will expand and there have been winners as well as losers. There's been a 22% increase apparently in applications for uh, healthcare and nursing related degrees. And yeah, anthropology, the wonder of anthropology is it it is such a reflexive discipline that encourages people to think about context, how relationships change or are shaped by context. And this is just one of them. I mean, we this does provide fertile ground for thinking about um, how the institutions that that shape the reproduction of our own discipline are changing. Um, So it's great to to reflect on that, and I agree with the, the comment that you know that we know that states have a way of seeing <laughs> that is very schematic and controlling. Sometimes they don't actually. Sometimes I, you, you get the impression that the current uh, state in in the UK is muddling through rather than following a clear vision. But on the ground, people interpret the rules and and, and use their resources in all kinds of creative ways and. You know, academics are, on the whole, quite adaptable and flexible. They're not recalcitrant, backward, not defensive about things. They're quite good at adapting to you know, new situations. Definitely uh, the prospects of collective action. I'm The jury is out as far as I'm concerned. I, I agree with David's point that, you know, Marx was wrong uh, and Trotsky was certainly wrong in the idea that when situations, social situations, deteriorate and become truly awful that's good because it catalyzes opposition working class revolt no it doesn't but the experience tends to be the the opposite that it just militates against collective action and cooperation but I I do see um, there is plenty of, of anger and, and the mood the groundswell of discontent is huge the trouble is the electoral cycle only comes around once every four or five years and we, you know it's befuddled by other factors like fake news and, and, you know, popularity contests between leaders. But I hope that it will translate into, certainly in the case of the UK, I mean, not many people are impressed with the way that our government has handled this crisis, has handled education, has handled, uh, it's been a fiasco on exams, uh, and its governance of universities has been pretty shambolic. And, you know, it could be a lot better. Yeah, I just, I mean, I look at our own, we have a very robust and active university college union in my institution. Sometimes that's great. Sometimes it's not so great because they're not very selective in choosing which battles to fight. They tend to fight all of them at the same time. Sometimes it turns out that management and vice chancellors are not the evil dastardly neoliberalizing villains that they're painted to be in in, and having you know having worked as a head of department i sometimes see it from both sides i and i i don't think i mean while they may be struggling and out of their depth and sometimes not as enlightened as they should be i don't think that in every institution um this them and us dualism is very helpful that sometimes you know that management are, are trying to do the best they can and they're not you know, um, aligned with government at all in trying to, you know, make people redundant, um, introduce shock doctrine politics into their own institutions. Many of them come from academic backgrounds themselves and get it. Many don't. You know, we, we've seen quite a number of examples of radical sociologists <laughs> and radical geographers who, the moment they become vice chancellor seem to enact the very policies that they wrote vehemently against but not always it varies and i I don't condemn all vice chancellors, all university leaderships as being sort of siding with government they too are are trying to find a way through this i I wish sometimes actually i think collective resistance should come not only from action from the unions but actually from the universities uk or australia you know whatever the, the equivalent is that the Vice chancellors need to cooperate more and realise that they are facing similar problems and that collectively their voice could be a lot stronger if they try to challenge the divide and rule tactics that are being employed against them. And that goes with the model of uber-fierce competition. You know, the the neoliberal model tries to get every institution to compete. Audit culture does that. We're all being measured uh, and evaluated on a scale that ranks us differently but if we you know stop say halt you know wait a minute uh, hang on stop the bus we don't want to play the game like this anymore uh, but in order to make that a change happen they have to cooperate and step outside of the logic of this system which is running their own institutions into the ground we need to step back think about it and, and come up with it i think you know you, you could say that on a positive sense that the crisis, the COVID has been a catalyst that's enabled a lot of institutions to rethink, it's forced them to rethink their, their, their direction of travel. And that could be good, you know, if we can think productively about what kind, you know, it, it is a time to, to imagine a better situation. We've, we've had, what, 20, 30 years of this kind of neoliberal model. In the UK, I think it's an outlier. Melinda mentioned that the reforms uh, that were happening in Australia in the 80s, we had those. There was a period when Australia and New Zealand were the, the laboratories for testing out the, the neoliberal policy agendas for higher education. The UK, I think, is currently that global leader in experimentation uh, when it tripled student fees and introduced this sort of highly uh, competitive model. And we're seeing the failures of that model. So, um, the rest of the world, take note and think about how you can do things differently. Maybe Mondragon or the University of Arizona uh, provides some exemplars of where we can go.
3: Your question about, uh, for graduate students in anthropology, thinking about where they might go in this, first of all, is understanding the trajectory of the disciplines. They're very different from country to country. American anthropology was founded by a group of Austrian and German Jews refugees from Europe who focused on ethnocide, genocide of Native Americans, the legacy of slavery and on immigration policy. And so anthropology was in the middle of the most controversial political struggles and then was purged out of that uh, by the McCarthy years. They were punished and then some were thrown out completely in Vietnam and happened again. And anthropology became a very passive, quiet little corner of, uh, but there's still people in anthropology who are working on issues of policy, indigenous rights, uh, gender inequality. And there's there's plenty of work being done there. The discipline, as a discipline, doesn't seem to have any purchase on doing anything uh, politically, but there are a lot of anthropologists who do. And if you look at the kind of work that they do, it's still the same recipe of combining an analysis of institutions and organizations and roles, combining visions of culture and understanding of symbolic behavior and how they relate to one another, and then having a comparative perspective that allows you to say, well, this is, the way I see it here isn't the only way it can possibly be. There must be other ways to do it and mm. beginning to do that kind of comparative work. That's still the right strategy. Uh, the question is whether, whether anthropologists wouldn't be a little more systematic about applying it to their own work situations uh, and become more proactive in trying to restructure the work environment that they're in and not just be willing inmates.
2: And you're making me think of David Price's book uh, Threatening Anthropology about that period in which uh, anthropology was enough of a... Uh, a collective that's rabble rouser right. that McCarthy had, you know, anthropologists yeah. in his sights. Uh, and I'm not sure that we are no, but very crazy. threatening. Nobody's
4: and, us anymore. <laughs> but the thing we, has, we have seen, it's, 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 it is very positive, is the explosion of activity around Black Lives Matter yeah. and anti racism, you know, sparked by the the brutal murder of George, uh, George Floyd. Uh, that's had a, you know, catalyzing effect mm-hmm. on. Um, processes of, you know, rethinking the, the, uh, the pedagogies and decolonizing the curriculum. These are, these issues are, you know, kind of raging through uh, campuses at the moment and have been, you know, since... Um, the beginning of this year. And, and you know, anthropology is I, well, certainly up there, you know, uh, with other disciplines in, in thinking through these and, and expressing that kind of discontent with, with the past and the way things have been.
2: Mm. So is it possible that we're ending on some sort of call to arms?
3: <laughs> um, no, the, enemy is, the enemy is real. I mean, imagine being an activist anthropologist on the Black Lives Matter movement in Trump's America. That's a very dangerous place to be. There are already at least four cases of people being fired with tenure for mobilizing on these issues uh, or being called to account by boards of trustees. So, in that freedom of speech, is now very much in breach precisely because of the kind of regime we've got in Washington. So it's dangerous work, but there's still people willing to do it.
2: Mm. That sounds like a, an appropriately, if not optimistic, uh, progressive moment to bring the conversation to a close uh, and it gives us a bit of a bit of a direction to think in. So can I just say thank you all very, very much for coming together across three different time zones and across three different contexts, uh, and it's been a real pleasure to talk to you.
3: Indeed. Thank you so much you. for organizing it. David.
2: You've been listening to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology. This podcast is produced by David Border Giles, Timothy Neal, Cameo Daly, Mytheline Maher, and Matt Barlow, and made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. To learn more about this podcast, find us on Twitter. We're at AnthroCombo, and don't forget to rate and review us on your chosen podcasting platform.